0: Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Vader. i There's a uh there's a dismal feeling to this city today. A down and dismal feeling. It's a it's like one of those uh narrations, voiceover narrations that begins uh film noir from the forties or fifties, you know, uh, nighttime, the city. A fog has embraced the city, something like that. But there is a kind of a there's a literally a fog outside traffic is uh one of those things where you know you're in traffic and um It never moves. And then you look for some point that's blocking it, but there is never a point. (laughs) This is a metaphor for life. There's never a point where you can actually see what's blocking it, but it never moves, right? And then it starts to move. And you don't know why it stopped, and you don't know why it stayed there, and you don't know why it starts. It's all out of your control. And the air is heavy, and people look glum. I mean, it's, uh, it's also, you know... The part of the city that the studio uh, and offices are located in uh, is um, way overcrowded. It's one of the most crowded parts of all of New York City, and people are working hard down here. They've been working hard their whole lives. A lot of it is manual labor. A lot of it, uh, people dragging carts around and pushing lunch carts and dragging carts full of dresses, and the winter's been going on for a while, so it's one of those times you know, where... um, people are um, got their heads down and they're headed in the right direction. They just hope they make it to the to the goal line. The goal line being uh lift in spirits, the actual spring arriving, which is it's it's only a few weeks but it could be it feels like months. So it's one of those days. However, there are, I'm sure there's always bright spots. Valentine's Day is coming next Wednesday. Did you get your card or cards? Did you I don't know. Maybe you're not the type. Maybe you're not the type. I mean, uh, for you to do that would be too sentimental. It would be too sentimental. It would be like you're sort of dutifully marching along like everybody else, like a lemming, you know. Um, buy this card, buy this um, box of candy, buy this heart, buy, you know, it's manufactured holiday consumerism of the worst sort. Uh, <clears throat> you're not going to buy a card. You know, maybe you're one of those. You're not going to buy a card. No candy, nothing special. She. Or he knows that you love them, and that should be good enough, right? I mean, what else do they want? He's supposed to be like everybody else and prove it. Or on the other hand, maybe you love somebody who knows you love them, but likes to get a card anyway. Um, that symbols, uh, expressions, and ritualized symbols, or actually material symbols of this love, uh, do count for something. Do they? I think they do. Depending on whether or not somebody really wants them to count. I mean, if I never got a Valentine's Day card, I would feel bad. But that's you know, it's not like I have one personality. I have about forty. Part of me feels like cold, like why should I have to do this? And the other part of me feels like oh, what a what a great thing it would be to get you know to to get this card, to get this letter, to get this thing mailed out, and then somebody's going to get it and they're going to feel good. So who knows? Uh, I, I don't know uh, where this whole modern Valentine's Day card thing, and this candy origin, this ritual originated. Where did it originate? I mean, God knows there isn't uh, a real holy day or any day of real depth and meaning that America hasn't turned into a money circus. So uh, you never really everything is obscured. Christmas, whatever it is, any real Fourth uh, of July, Memorial Day, anything that uh, that really means something, that is commemorating. Uh, a great person or a great moment in history or a turning point in all of history for humankind um, can is turned into cash by this country, and that's what this country is all about. I was um, watching, I watched about half of the Super Bowl on, um, speaking of uh, <laughs> commercialized rituals, I watched about half the Super Bowl last Sunday, and of course when the commercials come on, I turned the sound off. Because God forbid, right? Uh, bad enough to stupid enough to look at. But um, uh, I noticed one odd commercial. Although I didn't have the sound on, I noticed one that seemed very odd to me. There was the usual commercials for uh, whatever, but there was one for uh, Ram Trucks. Dodge is it that makes them Ram Trucks? And um, the usual thing with the truck is pulling the Empire State Building behind it without any problem, or you know, climbing up Mount Everest uh, in first gear, something or other. But then there was, um, at the end of the commercial or in the beginning or along with it, there was a picture of Martin Luther King, a picture of Martin Luther King, because it's right around his birthday, right? And um, uh, I had no idea what that was about, but it did seem very disturbing, very odd. And uh, a day or two later, I read this editorial in the New York Times. It says, making Dr. King a pitchman, turning his words upside down. Uh, William Burnback, uh, a titan of Madison Avenue advertising, who died in 1982, said, if your advertising goes unnoticed, everything else is academic. The spinmeisters for Ram trucks must have taken Mr. Burnback's admonition to heart. With a Super Bowl commercial on Sunday that used as its soundtrack a sermon delivered by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 50 years earlier to the day, they got the notice they wanted. Much of the reaction, though, amounted to a richly deserved thumbs down. Apparently, I'm not the only one, uh, even without the sound on, but especially with the sound on, who felt as uh, even this was too much. In a country where there is no such thing as too much anymore, that even this may have been too much. The sermon was Dr. King's drum major instinct, drum major instinct speech, given in Atlanta in 1968, two months before his assassination. Everybody, he said, had this instinct, quote, a desire to be out front, a desire to lead the parade, a desire to be first. But it had to be harnessed, he said, as he went on to equate greatness with service to others. Ostensibly, the Ram commercial was an appeal for people to serve. But who's kidding whom? The goal was to sell trucks with Dr. King's voice as pitchman. Amazing, right? just when you just when you absolutely think that there is no worse they can be no no lower they can go and you could throw trump into that all the time of course because he is the actual living symbol of trash of the bottom of the barrel of what's underneath the sewer in america he is he is american now now <clears throat> uh, the editorial goes on it might serve history a tad more faithfully To note other appeals that Dr. King made on that February 4th, 1968 sermon. For one thing, he was appalled by the way many people went into hock to buy vehicles they couldn't possibly afford. Quote, so often, haven't you seen people making $5,000 a year and driving a car that costs them $6,000? And they wonder why the ends never meet. While we're at it, according to the editorial, he also didn't think highly of advertising gurus. You know, those gentlemen of massive verbal persuasion, he continued, they have a way of saying things to you that kind of gets you into buying. In order to be a man of distinction, you must drink this whiskey. In order to make your neighbors envious, you must drive this type of car. In order to be lovely to love, you must wear this kind of lipstick or this kind of perfume. And, you know, before you know it, you're just buying that stuff. For that matter, Dr. King might well have been talking about a president a half century in the future when he expounded on the need to rein in the drum major instinct, for otherwise it becomes very dangerous and pernicious. (sighs) So they're selling trucks now with the voice of Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, probably the greatest American that ever lived, um, and what he represented in the background helping them to sell trucks. I mean, they are so full of shit, these people, that they are shit. There is nothing else that they are. They're not even a car company. I don't know what they are, but they're pure, unadulterated shit is one thing they definitely are. Um, And, you know, talk about the drum major instinct, wanting to lead the parade. Now you've got Trump, just like the Romans and the Nazis and North Koreans and the Chinese and the Russians, he wants to have a big military parade, He complete with tanks, rockets, cannon. And thousands of ready-to-kill-when-given-the-order troops, goose-stepping probably. He probably ordered them to goose-step, John Kelly, his pet general. Um, is, there, is there anything left? Really, think about it. Look around, read the paper. Is there anything left of American democracy at all? Look at what Congress does. That government shut down again. Where, where is... Uh, I know a lot of what we studied in school was the ideal democracy, starting with George Washington. I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the, uh, the money tree, you know, whatever it was. But I, I don't know. I, I've been alive not for an insignificant amount of time. I have never seen anything like it. All the worst of what this country can be is now in full flower. How it will change, when it will change, I don't know. Meanwhile, all right, meanwhile, it's Valentine's Day card. Valentine's Day card. Valentine's Day is coming up. Um, uh, Valentine's Day. Right. I have to get my mind back on that because otherwise it's all so fucking gloomy. Um, I know there was a St. Valentine. There was a St. Valentine way back in history sometime when Christians were martyrs, when they weren't later on martyring other people. (laughs) But when Christians were martyrs, St. Valentine was probably a martyr of some sort or did some great noble deed to help uh, the average person or a group of average people. And I looked at Wikipedia, of course. And St. Valentine, it says here, is the patron saint of athianced couples, uh, beekeepers, whatever, happy marriages, love, and then plague and epilepsy. (laughs) Happy marriages, love, and plague and epilepsy. How does that go together? Well, Um, To me, it all sounds about right if you're talking about love. I mean, love, right? It's ecstatic. It could be peaceful, doomed, platonic, mysterious, uh, eternal, uh, come to a sudden screeching halt, start instantly. Um, And, you know, as I've mentioned uh, many thousands of times, I still struggle with loving and being loved. And uh, since it's never been simple or easy for me. I mean, is is being loved or loving easy for anybody? Yes. There are people, not very many, it's rare. There are some people, and it's rare, uh, for whom love is not some thicket of thorns, but uh, more of a steady beam of light, you could, you could call it. Um, and people like that are uh, just blessed beyond words. I mean, they are really, they are born with um, a golden spoon in their heart somewhere. I mean, I, I know one or two people like that. And you find like one in a million, right? Anyway, my struggles about love uh, are not... Uh, they're not fake news, but they are definitely old news. So I'm not going to ramble on and on about what love is. Uh, <clears throat> the other day, though, the other day, I saw uh, one example of a kind of love. I saw... Um, uh, a video of Romeo and Juliet, uh, the 1968 version. Uh, there have been different versions of Romeo and Juliet going all the way back to when movie uh, movie versions. This is going all the way back to when in the 30s, right? I think Leslie Howard was in one. <clears throat> Black and white versions, uh, British versions, American versions, and up-to-date, always people, you know, modernized Shakespeare versions. I haven't seen too many of those. But uh, the one from 1968 by Franco Zeffirelli is... Is one I've seen before, but I hadn't seen it for many, many years. And it's an absolutely beautiful movie. Franco Zeffirelli uh, directed various movies, and he, um, he directed other things. He directed, I saw an opera, a live opera at the Metropolitan Opera once. That somebody treated me to a ticket, um, and it was uh, the most beautiful thing I ever saw. He had a way of directing things and staging things and filming things that was extraordinary. I mean, uh, pure beauty absolute beauty but not not um delicate you know uh, don't don't careful don't drop that china it will break beautiful not fragile beautiful but actually totally alive bursting um but harmonized beautiful all at the same time and um it's like uh, if you looked at a bunch of beautiful old master paintings you know like vermeer or all the way up to Manet, or whatever. Any paintings, beautiful paintings, representative paintings. And they just came alive in a series of motions and movements, and the characters jumped off and became alive. Um, And that's what Zeffirelli uh, movies are like. And it's also a great version of Shakespeare's play. Uh, You know, word for word, the uh, version of the play, with wonderful British actors, uh, who are always much better than American actors, uh, at least at Shakespeare anyhow. And two... Beautiful stars. Talk about beautiful. Uh, Actor who, you know, the Romeo and Juliet, whoever it was, um, who was it? Olivia Hussey, who played um, Juliet, and uh, I think uh, somebody named Leonard Whiting, who went on to do very little, I guess. But they were actual teenagers. They were teenagers when the movie was filmed. And I've seen this play. I've seen Romeo and Juliet many times before on stage and on screen. But when you see this version, what's interesting is you, you realize for sure, you realize very clearly that Romeo and Juliet are teenagers. Because some of the old versions in the movies that I saw, uh, you were looking at, um, uh, you know, people who were in their 20s and there was no attempt to make them look younger or act younger. They were in their 20s. Uh, but, the, but they are they, they intended to be, uh, and there's words in the play, and they're intended by Shakespeare to be Juliet wasn't even 14. And they refer to that in the play. And Romeo couldn't have been more than you know 14 or 15, maybe 15 years old. They were teenagers in love, teenagers in love. They were living in that, what could you call it, an enchanted land, somewhere halfway between infancy and adulthood, right? Teenager time. It's a kind of a crazy, pure-hearted mixture of sex, Oedipal drives and a pure essence of heart, pure essence of heart. I was looking at a puppy. I was looking out the window today, when I was coming down here, and it was somebody had a, a puppy, you know, like a, a two-month-old, a six-week, two-month-old puppy. Didn't know which way to turn or jump or look any second. <laughs> you know what puppies can be like at that age, right? They're running around, jumping, grabbing their own tail, jumping on people, walking one way, then of a split second, walking another way, sniffing everything. I mean, look at this. It's the world, right? So somewhere between that and... Um, Mature, slow, complex, you know, uh, grown-upness. Teenagers, teenagers. And um, um, there was, um, there's that scene in the movie, uh, maybe the most beautiful scene in the movie, although some people think the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet is the most beautiful or touching or moving, which it is. But uh, I think, for me, the scene in the movie uh, or the play where Romeo and Juliet first see each other when they first see each other, when they first speak to each other, is so gorgeous. It's so absolutely beautiful and so doomed, of course, by its own impossible purity that it makes you weep. It really it made me cry. It makes you makes you cry because you know, I mean, maybe you if you never saw it before, you don't know what's coming. And I might like, is this called a spoiler if you never saw Romeo and Juliet? Well <laughs> I don't know. Um most of the people who listen to me are uh, well into their whatever. Call it well into their age. So you know the story of Romeo and Juliet. But, um, but it's, it's doomed. And um, you uh, it makes you cry because it's so beautiful when they first meet. Uh, it's the best example of love at first sight that I ever saw. Love at first sight. i uh, pause for uh, a little water here. And why don't you do too? Great Water, brought to you by Ram Trucks and Dr. Martin Luther King. Buy it now. Consume. Consume. Love at first sight. Love at first sight. I mean, uh, either it's happened to you or it hasn't. I mean, you, you know if it's happened to you. And if you're not sure if it hasn't happened to you or it has, then it hasn't happened to you. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, there's a, speaking of movies, obviously, I do nothing but watch movies most of my life. Not true, but uh, I do watch a lot of movies, or I have watched a lot of movies. That scene in um, in The Godfather, where uh, Michael Corleone is walking around in the hills of Sicily, and he sees this uh, girl walking along. Boom, that's it. And they said, you've been hit by the thunderbolt. So you know. If you know, you know. But um, like I say, if you're not sure, it didn't happen to you. And it ha- this has happened to me. Love at first sight has happened to me maybe two or three times in my life. Uh, The first time it happened to me turned out to be, as is often the case with such things, a mirage. It was a mirage. Uh, Not really love at at all, but still I recall every detail of it. When I was 23, I met a woman uh, at the welfare department where I worked in downtown Brooklyn. Uh, I was writing, I was sitting at my desk, I was writing some notes. These are the desks, these, you know, these sort of Heavy gray metal civil service desks were lined up side by side with about a foot and a half between them. I'd say about a foot and a half, two feet, five in a row. It's called a unit. And there were um, eight units, there were eight rows uh, separated by about five to six feet, right? And, you know, sort of jammed together. You're out there in the middle of this giant high ceilinged uh, open room. And <clears throat> I'm sitting at my desk and I'm writing some notes. I had gone out into what they called the field, which is an interesting word. Gone out into some slum and visited a family, or usually it was ninety um, percent of my cases were mothers with children with no men uh, within hailing distance. Anyhow, I'm, I'm sitting making notes on a on a visit I made, and I hear a woman on the phone behind me, and I couldn't help hearing her. I couldn't. I wasn't like I was deliberately overhearing, you know, trying to listen, but I couldn't help hear her because first of all, I have trouble blocking out any sound that's above a whisper. Any Anywhere I go, anytime, which is why you hardly ever go out of the house, why I don't like living in Manhattan. Um, it is just so overwhelming if you can't block out sound, especially human voices, especially human voices. And secondly, the reason I couldn't help but overhear was because she was talking a little louder than usual. I mean, we generally tried to keep our voices down when we were on the phone there in the welfare department. Because we were so close together and there were so many of us that we had to, you know, have, create our own little zone of privacy. And <clears throat> as I was listening to her, uh, she, she became more and more emotional. This is still, you know, I wasn't, you know, hadn't turned around yet. Didn't want to intrude. And then she actually started crying, which you didn't hear every day. You know, I mean, you heard the clients crying all the time, but you did not hear uh, the welfare workers crying all the time. I cried some of the time. <laughs> it was that kind of job. Um, Finally, I I turned around to look at her, and she looked straight at me. She was still on the phone, but she just put her hand over the the mouthpiece for a second, and she just looked straight at me. And I couldn't say this woman was uh, beautiful, but she was pretty. Uh, She was young and pretty. She looked like maybe she was in her mid 20s. She had a sort of childlike face, which was appealing, and she had a big mass of, of thick black hair wearing a white blouse, and she had a thin, I remember all this, she had a thin wristwatch on her left wrist. Now, I'm giving you all these details about what I remember, what she looked like, but really, I didn't see anything but her eyes. She had really big, beautiful, dark green eyes, and they were filled with tears. And then, bam, right there, right thats boom, bam, whatever the word, I was smitten right then and there. Smitten with what? I don't know. I don't know. But I was transfixed. Shot through the heart, right? Just the whole thing. Remember these silly cartoons with Cupid shooting a lover, lovers through the heart? Um, When I was shot, some part of my anatomy, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Cupid has shot me in various places, my brain, um, somewhere below my belt. But uh, this I felt like I was shot in my heart, right? I was was it. And I turned around to get back to my work, uh, but I couldn't work. All I could hear was her voice. By this time, she's gotten off the phone. But I could still hear her uh, that sound in her voice, the, the emotion, the tears, the appeal. And all I could see in front of me, I couldn't see the notes. I couldn't see the great desk. All I could see in front of me were these huge green eyes filled with tears and what I imagined to be a plea for help. That's, that's the key here, to be rescued. She needed to be rescued. And what else was I here on earth for? And what, what, if I, what was I put here for? But to rescue women in distress. That was my original job. I have since fallen off in doing my job, but um, that's what I did for a long time. That's what I was put here for. I mean, uh, that's what I spent most of my day doing when I was a welfare worker, for instance. I was helping mothers with children, no fathers in evidence, who had been abandoned or victims of abuse, and they were living in dire jeopardy, these women. And um, I've been training for this job since I was four years old. You know, that's it. Um, anyhow, the incident with the woman behind me happened on a Friday. I remember it was a Friday. And I thought about her, actually not thought about her, but saw her face. I kept seeing her face and especially her eyes all weekend long. So I couldn't wait to go to work on Monday. Not normally something I rush to do. I mean, I like, I like my job because um, I was helping people, right? And I was helping women with kids. This is important. And when I got to work on Monday morning, I immediately looked for her as soon as I got into this room, this giant room. Uh, I looked over at her desk, but she wasn't there. She wasn't there. And I asked somebody in her unit, the row of desks behind me, where she was. So where's this woman? And this guy told me that Friday had been her last day. He didn't know anything about her because they never talked much. And she didn't have any close friends in her unit. And she hadn't been there for more than uh, a few weeks. I hadn't really noticed her because I was spending so much time concentrating on my work and not looking around too much. And she was gone. That was her last day. The day I saw her was her last day. And that's it. You know, my, my my first true love, gone. Seen for just a moment and gone forever. So now I'm what? I'm lost. I'm totally lost. So about a month goes by, and one day I came home from the office uh, to my uh, apartment, which was a small two-room apartment in a brownstone in Brooklyn Heights. And I go into the foyer of the building, get my mail, and it was her. She was there. My true love, she's getting the mail. And she was taking mail out of her mailbox. Um, she lived there. She lived in the building where I live. And I said hello, and she looked at me kind of like blankly. She really didn't remember who I was. I mean, maybe it wasn't love at first sight for her, boys and girls. Is <laughs> love at first sight? Does if it goes in both directions, like Romeo and Juliet, then you really got a play to write. But if it goes in one direction, well, that's a different kind of play, right? But I reminded her that I, you know, I had uh, uh, worked with her at the welfare department, and um, uh, and I even said something about that day. But she looked at me like she didn't remember anything, like a blank look. But it didn't matter to me. I mean, I saw those big green eyes of hers staring at me, and they still had that uh, that kind of um, can-you-help-me look, right? Rescue 911. And I was hooked up. I was hooked again, completely hooked. And the next week I ran into her again on the stairs, and we talked a little bit. And eventually, shy as I was even, though she was not shy, and maybe she saw something in me, I don't know. But we spent more and more time together. We took walks and... Uh, Um, we sat in her apartment, we watched a couple of TV shows, went out and we actually went out. I went out, (laughs) I went out into the world and we went out to eat a couple of times. We had lunch. I don't know if we ever went to dinner. Inevitably, uh, we had sex, right? Which was, um, nothing spectacular, but, uh, you know, it was part of the whole thing. It had to be. We were like teenagers in love, even though we're in our mid twenties. So I tell my therapist, I would go to my the guy I've been seeing for a few years. In fact, since I was a teenager at the time, I've been seeing him for several years. And I tell him, you know, I think I'm in love, and he says, "You don't know what love is." Bang, just like that. This guy was very blunt. He says, "You don't know what love is. Maybe when you're older, you'll know what love is." Uh, what he's really telling me is, you know, when you finally figure out uh, what your real feelings are in the forest of your insanity and your doubts, and your contradictions, and the 10 personalities you have, when you find out what your real feelings are, and where they originated, and who you really are, the goal of every spiritual quest, right, um, then you could say you love somebody, and you can really mean it. And of course, he was right. He was right. It took me another 40 years since that incident, including several girlfriends and three marriages, before I could even think I loved a woman and feel that I knew what it meant. And that if I said it, that I actually was saying something I really meant. People say, I mean, I have people say, I love you all the time. How many, is that a word that's used more than any other word? Well, I don't mean literally any other word. I mean the word, I mean the, and, (laughs) there are lots of words. But that word, people say it all the time. People say it all the time. Um, How much they mean it, I don't know. If you over I always felt if you overuse a word that means something that's expressing a very deep emotion or feeling, if you overuse it, it kind of dilutes it and maybe even it's a sign that you don't even mean it that much. I don't know, but I, I hardly ever say that have said that in my life to anybody. I might have felt it, but I hardly had the nerve to say it, and that's my own complex neurosis, you know that I was afraid that maybe if I said it, it wouldn't get said back to me, right? And then where would I be? I'd be a sap, a sucker, and a loser. Um, not that I thought that all, all that stuff uh, consciously, but that's probably the feeling I had. <clears throat> so love. But people say, I love you all the time. And, and Valentine's Day is going to come. And 4,000 trillion pounds of candy and Valentine's Day cakes are going to be given to other people. Um, red ribbons, uh, heart-shaped boxes, gifts uh, cute little thingies there's probably a valentines day app i don't know who owns who owns the trademark the valentines day the catholic church i don't know but uh, and the cards maybe maybe 26 million valentines day cards i don't know but love at first sight love at first sight and it definitely had happened to me with this with this woman and i keep you know i wonder what is this mysterious thing that causes some people to fall in love the split second they see somebody or hear their voice. Now, once again, I say, has this happened to you? You know what I'm talking about then, right? If it hasn't happened to you, like I said, you don't know. But uh, you know for sure because it's something that grips you overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly. I mean, it's the, the second you see, so the split second you see somebody, you look in their eyes, you see their eyes. And, and in some cases, when you hear their voice, and I know somebody who fell in love with a voice That's more unusual, right? Uh, But um, it's not simple, obviously. It's not clear. To say at least, it's not simple. But being so psychological and from my unscientific observations of people I've known and from my own, you know, in and out involvement in love or some simulcrum of love over my whole life, one thing is certainly clear. And again, I say it's because I'm so psychological about things. This love at first sight is partially edible. It's edible. It's a purely unconscious attraction to someone who reminds you, in some part of your brain, of your mother or your father, or both. I mean, um, uh, I remember once I was visiting some friends of mine with my ex-wife. And I was a little drunk. Uh, and uh, everything was sort of pleasantly hazy. You know how it is when you get a little high, but you're not totally off the deep end. And everything was sort of blurred around the edges, speaking of, um, you know, mushy Valentine's Day cards. And I looked at my wife at the time. And, of course, she had green eyes, too, need I say, that, you know, she had green eyes. And all of a sudden, I had a vision of every woman I ever knew or had any relationship with. It was truly like a vision. Um, Any feeling at all for And they were all queens, like in a deck of cards, like a queen uh, represented on a a, a card in a deck of cards. And they all had green eyes. Every woman I ever knew. And the cards flipped backwards through time and wound up at the final card in the deck, the final queen. And it was my mother's face with her sad, crazy, big green eyes. It's it's absolutely amazing. Uh, It was a vision I could never forget. I could close my eyes and see it all over again. Although having a couple of drinks wouldn't hurt. So, so to what extent, I wonder, do we fall in love with somebody who in some way or ways you know, reminds us, for better or for worse, and for better or for worse is really the phrase, of our mothers and fathers, or both. And even if we find or are found by somebody who we think is in no way like our parents, if we go out of our way, if we try to go out of our way, um, to find somebody who's not like them. Are we fooling ourselves? Do we just wind up in the same spot anyway? Um, but uh, who can say? Nobody really knows. I mean, nobody really knows. Some love is partly this edible surge, and sometimes it just seems like fate, an arrangement of invisible forces that sweeps you up and puts you just exactly where some larger destiny intends you to be. I mean, who can say?
1: What is this thing Called love This funny thing Called love Just who can solve It's mystery Why should it make A
2: That's amore When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's
3: some Bells will ring, tingling, 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 and you'll sing beat the bell hearts will play
2: tippy,
4: tippy-tippy-tay tippy-tippy-tay like a guitar and on the
2: When the stars make you jewel, just like a pastefas Oh, some When you dance down the street with a cloud at your feet you're in love When you walk in a dream but you know you're not dreaming, signore of me, but you see Back in old Napoli, that's amore That's bells will ring, ting-a-ling-a-ling,
1: ting-a-ling-a-ling, and you sing Vita Bella, Vita Bella, Vita Bella, hearts will
2: play, <laughs> 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 like a gate-a-della, lucky fella, when the stars make you drool just like past the a
4: gate-a-della, lucky fella,
2: when the stars make you drool just like past Tomorrow tomorrow. when you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, sing. I do see back in old Napoli that's a more. I'm <laughs> you be the same
3: boy called Frank Mills on September 12th, right here in front of the Waverly. But unfortunately, I lost his address. He was last seen with his friend, a drummer the 2 you...
0: Yeah, it's easy to fall in love, but it's hard to get out of it, <laughs> which is the whole problem. It's the whole problem. But there's nothing you can do about it. And, you need know, you to work hard at doing something about it, but there's really nothing you can do about it. Anyhow, um, this has been Mike Fader with The Turning Point. And if you want to get in touch with me, and I always welcome that so I know at least somebody's listening. Please go to my website it's faderfiles f e d e r f i l e s.com faderfiles.com Fader and uh, just want to say that this show is dedicated to Virginia she knows who she is and of course as always to my beautiful wife who I love and uh, thank you for listening i will see you next week
4: me treat you the way that I do. Gee, baby, ain't I good to you? Love makes me treat you the way that I do. To you, I bought your fur coat for Christmas, diamond rings, a big Cadillac car, and everything. Love makes me treat you the way. I do, G baby. Ain't I good to you? betray you the way that I do. A big cat like car and everything. Love makes me treat you the way that I do.
5: wonder what tomorrow will bring Maybe a damn